Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture and our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 3 on the Son of God. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Gold Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor David Wiest. He is pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Evansville, Indiana. Pastor Wiest, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Great to have you back on. Of course, we've had you on when we had our panel discussions before, but like our guest last week, I think you were actually on with him, Pastor Dustin, back one time. But you know, now as we kind of have this more solo format of me and a guest and so forth, great to have you on and lead us through this article today on the Son of God. And I kind of set this up for us. You know, we're not that far into the Augsburg Confession. Of course, we had our historical introduction to it. And then we've covered Article 1 of God, you know, who God is, and then the progression there, a natural progression of well, we're not God, right? And we have this problem that separates us from God, which is mankind's inborn terminal illness, if you will, that we're all infected with of original sin. And we covered that last week then. And then you might think that the next logical move would be to what's the answer for sin then? And of course, we know that to be justification, the article upon which the church stands or falls, what Christ is all about, as we hear about in 1 Timothy 1.15, right? Christ came into the world to save sinners. But before we get there, actually, so that's next week, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Before we get to that, though, we've got this article that we're talking about today, Article 3 on the Son of God. And why is this article put in here between original sin and justification It might seem pretty obvious, it probably is pretty obvious, but great to dig into this doctrine and teaching that is part of our Lutheran Confession here today. So before we get into some of that, let's go ahead and just read the article. Of course, a reminder on this show, we use Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 3 from the Augsburg Confession, The Son of God. Our churches teach that the Word, that is the Son of God, citing John chapter 1, verse 14, assumed the human nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So there are two natures, the divine and the human, inseparably joined in one person. There is one Christ, true God and true man, who was born of the Virgin Mary, truly suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. He did this to reconcile the Father to us and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of mankind, citing John chapter 1, verse 29. He also descended into hell and truly rose again on the third day. Afterward, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. There he forever reigns and has dominion over all creatures. He sanctifies those who believe in him by sending the Holy Spirit into their hearts to rule, comfort, and make them alive. He defends them against the devil and the power of sin. The same Christ will openly come again to judge the living and the dead, and so forth, according to the Apostles' Creed. All right. Thus, in its entirety, Article 3, the Son of God, Pastor Weiss, go ahead and what are we talking about here? And it begins a little strange, maybe. Our churches teach that the Word, that is the Son of God, And of course, we know that language from John 1. What's the connection there? And go ahead and get us into what is the teaching that we are conveying with our confession of this article? Yeah, good. We're talking about two things, basically, in this article. 
as we talk about the Son of God, that is, who he is and what he does. And a great place to start, obviously, if we're going to talk about who Jesus is, is John chapter 1, and, and especially the reference there is, is verse 14, where we hear about the Word becoming flesh and the glory as of the only Son from the Father. We hear John bore wit, John referring to John the Baptist, bore witness to him. So very clearly we're talking about Jesus, but we're getting at who is this Jesus. And so the Word is the perfect place to start because when we hear the Word, our mind automatically goes back, I think, to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we think, hey, he's talking about somebody eternal here. He's talking about God. But then right away, while the divine nature is introduced with that word, very quickly we see how the divine nature takes on man's nature in the womb of Mary. So right away, very it's just such a beautiful article because it's, it's so succinct. You, you got to love that about the Augsburg Confession. It's so succinct and just doesn't waste a word in just in a few sentences. Uh, maybe even just in one sentence, I guess, we have the two natures of Christ, true God and true man, beautifully described. So that's what's going on here. So why the two natures? Why is that important to emphasize when we're talking about the Son of God? Yeah, I think there is an order to things. And it's important to put the first things first. And that's something that actually you mentioned when you were describing the first two articles there's a clear order to it. There's a, a logical progression. And we can't, in my opinion, make too big a deal of that. That's such a wonderful blessing for us. The order of things matters. If we forget one thing, we're probably going to mess up the next thing. And so uh, what I'm trying to say is this. You, you really can't talk about the work, which is what everybody wants to talk about, the work of Jesus, before you identify the, who he is. Because nobody else could do the work other than the one who is true God and true man. Yeah, you know, you mentioned, even in referencing the logical progression of these articles here, I'd say a lot of this first line here, uh, I should say the first two lines here of Article 3 are really a nice outflow from Article 1 on that article covering God, right? And that we heard used in there the language about the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they emphasized in there, our churches use the term person as the fathers. They're referencing the church fathers have used it. And we talked about that as we covered Article 1. And so, you know, as you were just setting up there, of course, this naturally then flows out of that, even as it flows out of Article 2 of the problem that we have that's going to be fixed in Article 4. And again, we'll still get there yet today as to the progression there from Article 3. But before we can get there, as you said, we got to wrestle with the fact that only God can do this in man's flesh, right? And so that's what we have going on in the Son of God, that this is the person of Christ as he comes out of here, right? Right, yeah. Who can bear the sins of the world? <laughs> Not me, right? Only God. But can God shed his blood? Well, he can now because God has become flesh, I mean, it, we need him to be true God and true man. It's the, the only way we can be saved, um, which, of course, is what the work of Christ is all about, is our salvation, our being redeemed. But then a couple other things, just in this, these two lines that you mentioned, um, maybe we can talk about it more later, but there's so much to dwell on. And I know this is familiar. I'm probably going to say this a million times over the next hour or so, but there are so many phrases, so many words that are worth stopping and considering. And, and when I say considering, I mean really opening up the scriptures and studying them and what their context are. Um, when did this happen, that the eternal took on man's nature, that the word took on man's nature? I think if we're too quick, if we don't pay attention, we get this wrong. It says in the womb. We tend to think about Christmas and the birth of Christ, but it was in the womb of Mary. What a wonderful thing to think about. I know a lot of people over the month of January have been in marches and talking about different life issues. And here we have God in the flesh, in the womb of Mary. That's mind-blowing. It's awesome. And then another example of it, this is the moment where the human nature and the divine are united. And there's this word that is used that deserves so much time and consideration. And the word is inseparable. And not just for a time, 
right? And I think sometimes people make that mistake. God and man are united in Christ, right? The two natures in this one person, and, it, and that wasn't just for a while. It's from the conception to this very day and on into eternity. This is who Christ is. And we didn't just need him to be true God and true man for a while. We need him to be true God and true man today, right now. Because there's a man sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us, one who understands our suffering and our struggle even better than what we do. And he's the one that intercedes for us. He's the one that's preparing a place for us. It's just, I know this is not a big controversial article, and I know it's something that sounds an awful lot like a creed, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed that we are very, very familiar with. So it's so easy to run past this to the next controversial thing. But this is foundational. It's comforting. And it really deserves and we really need to take time with it and to marvel over it and to enjoy it, to chew on it, you know, like a good meal. Yeah. And as you mentioned there too, as we dwell on it and think about it, I like what you already brought out there too, is that, you know, we may jump too quickly to the work and we're going to get there. You know, we're going to talk about the work that Christ did. That's part of the reason that this is inserted here, I believe. But in a sense, I like what this first, you know, three uh, lines here or so of this article do. It's kind of a mini Bible study on John 1, right? I mean, they cite John 1 verse 14, but then right at the end of the line three there, they cite John 1 29. And those are the two scripture passages that are cited here. Of course, we can talk about other scripture passages that confirm this teaching that is summarized here, as is true of the doctrines of our church, right? We summarize the teachings of the scripture into these compact doctrines, but we do cite the scriptures here. And I think it's interesting that they cite John 1 twice, and that's the only scripture passages cited here. And then they cite the Apostles' Creed at the end, and we can certainly talk about how that's a beautiful summary here. But I just, I think this is important that this is a beautiful little summary Bible teaching of what John 1, as you already talked about, connecting us back to Genesis 1, right? brings together for us of this is who God is for our salvation. Until we get that and kind of meditate on that and wrestle with that a little bit, we're not going to understand the work. And so I think this is good to kind of flush this out a little bit here. Is there anything else that you want to flush out on what we're establishing of the person of Jesus? Again, kind of flowing forth from the first article there, you know, who Jesus is before we get to what he came to do, the work of Christ. The only thing is really just to reemphasize what you just said for those who are listening. It is a wonderful thing when we have something that is so profound, that is explained so clearly and so succinctly. But what you just pointed out is worth repeating. It points us to one place in the scriptures. It doesn't have us jumping all over the place, and we could go all over the place to see more about what it means that Jesus is true God and true man, but it, it really does point you to John chapter one. And, you know, for the here, there's your devotion for the evening, right? It just, it points you to one place, one wonderful chapter in the Bible that makes this important point. The other thing is, again, we said you can't talk about the work before you've ID'd the person. John really in chapter one talks about all of it, the person and work of Jesus, but there is this real emphasis on the fact that he is true God and true man. And that's where he starts. And, you know, this prelude in John chapter one is, is unique to all the gospels. He, he starts in a lot different way than the other, uh, than the synoptic gospels do. And yeah, just anyway, I'm going on too long, but it's a really good point that you made. It, if you want to look deeper into these things, a good place to start is John chapter one. And then as that flows forth, then, as you just highlighted there for us, that this is going to flow into the work. And as we've already talked about, the creedal language is just obvious here. Of course, in Article 1, they specifically cite Nicaea. And of course, the Nicene Creed that comes out of that for our confession of God. But again, the connection is clear here that this is creedal language. He was crucified, died, and was buried. I mean, we just we recite that every Sunday, right? And then it gives a little explanation about reconciling us to the Father. It's not a direct quote of the creeds, 
and it'll end here in the Apostles' Creed, but this would be highlighting the work that he did when he came as the God-man, right? So go ahead and get us then into the work here. How does this confess the work that Christ came for? Yeah, as I was getting ready for this, I looked at all the different versions of this article that I have and found that to be helpful because the word usages are a little bit different. But I think the work can be broken down into three different things. And this isn't me being creative. It's just the words that were there. Three words, reconcile, rule, and return. They all start with R. And the reconciliation especially covers those verbs, those creedal verbs, born, suffered, crucified, dead, and buried. We talked about who God is, and now we're talking about his work. And they use these verbs where Melanchthon kind of inserts himself into the creed. That's a terrible way of putting it. <laughs> but where, where Melanchthon kind of does some commentary, I think it is to, to answer the question, why? So the work is described, born, suffered, crucified, dead, buried. There's the work. Why? And you said it. It's to reconcile. It's to appease God's wrath, which is also, I think, another good thing for us. The good thing about a short article is I can spend more time thinking about it and less time just reading it and trying to understand it. And that word reconcile, that idea of appeasing God's wrath, isn't something that maybe we think a lot about. We try to avoid thinking about God's wrath. So it's just a side note there. But the reason for the, his first grouping of creedal verbs is reconciliation. Being that sacrifice for our sin and our guilt so that we can be reconciled with God, so that his wrath is appeased, so that we can call him Father. That's the first part. And then the second listing of verbs is descended into hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God. And again, we kind of have it where the question is asked again, okay, here's what Jesus did, why? And the answer is to rule eternally, right? This exaltation that took place was all about putting Jesus over all things so that he rules eternally. And again, that's another word that I think deserves some consideration because I think especially as American Christians, the idea of rule is kind of just, there's some words we just don't like. We don't like the idea of anybody ruling over us. But if you look at how it's described, the ruling that takes place, it's the, the words that are used are like sanctify, purify, strengthen, comfort, right? And how does he do this? It says through the Holy Spirit. He bestows life. He gives grace. He blesses. He protects. He defends. All of those words are the words that are used to describe this ruling that Jesus is doing. So those are the first two, to reconcile and then to rule. And then finally, that third R was to return, to judge the living and the dead. And obviously, that's something that is good for us to sit and think about a little bit, the fact that Christ is coming back and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. We don't want to neglect that, even if it's been 2,000 years. It's going to happen, and we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds. So that is the very short version of the work of Christ. Since you bring it up here, a couple points on this. First, we love alliteration on this show. So uh, reconcile, rule, return. Very welcome. Love that. But uh, also, you, you mentioned there, and then this is the second point I would make, that with each one of these, we see things that I don't know if I want to say offensive, but maybe I might say that. But certainly, I forget the words you use, but don't sit comfortably with us as American Christians, or certainly with our American culture, I might just even broaden that to Western culture and Western Christianity, uh, especially as things have become uh, rather complacent and just easy for us in life and so forth that, you know, these things kind of hit us. And to think about God's wrath, to be reconciled to God, and without that, that God's wrath is against us, you know, let's take that one first. We're going to kind of break each of these down a little bit more. But go ahead and talk a little bit more about this. And they use the language in here, you know, sacrifice. And I think it's inescapable that when we're talking about God's wrath and being reconciled to him, of course, that goes back to the Old Testament. And how were we reconciled against the wrath of God? We see, you know, sometimes made too big a point of, but certainly a very wrathful God in the Old Testament. And yet he is also certainly 
a God of mercy many times throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the fact that he gives them sacrifices and worship at the tabernacle and the temple to which they could be reconciled. And all of that, of course, is pointing forward to the once for all sacrifice that comes in the son of God, this God man. And so walk us through that a little bit more here, because I think you're right. And we'll hit the other two in a minute here. But I think you're right that this kind of hits us and we don't necessarily we're not real comfortable thinking about the wrath of God and our need to be reconciled to that. As you were talking, I was just circling a couple of words that I either mentioned that I used or that are in the article, maybe both, I'm not sure. And there were three like that, the wrath and sacrifice and guilt. (laughs) Three words we just as soon not have to contend with or deal with. I think sometimes in the Old Testament, or we look at the Old Testament and we look at those sacrifices, and I know the thought has crossed my mind before that I'm glad that I live in New Testament times because what a bloody mess. I'm not sure my stomach could have handled being a priest. It was. It was a bloody mess. And I mean, I think we can even look at it. I'm someone who loves going out, getting outdoors with my camera and looking for wildlife. And I think because of that, I've kind of got a sensitivity that maybe some people don't have sometimes to wildlife. And so it's honestly, it's kind of hard for me to read that stuff and not go, yuck, what a waste, you know, for, (laughs) I mean, that's my initial feeling. What a waste for all of those animals to, to be just utterly destroyed. And it is, it's, it's tempting to be offended. And yet here I am in the New Testament, in New Testament times or in, you know, post ascension times. And that's nothing compared to God becoming flesh and giving his life, dying on a cross. There is an offense to the cross. And I don't think it's, I mean, what we see in the Old Testament, add up however many animals were sacrificed, and it's nothing compared to the word becoming flesh and shedding his blood, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the reference from John 129 that's mentioned in in the article. All of those animals, it's nothing compared to Christ. And I think that's the good thing about spending some time and dwelling on words that we're uncomfortable with and looking at the stories and the accounts, the history, and going, yuck, this is awful. This is terrible. This shouldn't be. Yeah, (laughs) I couldn't agree more. And yet it's nothing compared to what Christ has done. That shouldn't be either, except for the fact that God loves us. Um, And he's determined to bring us forgiveness, life, and salvation. So there is comfort in uncomfortable words when we study them according to the scriptures. Yeah, in that sense, you know, as you were talking, I found my mind going to Hebrews 10, right? You know, that, uh, what is it, verse 4 there or something like that? Uh, you know, not all the blood of goats and bulls could appease God's wrath. And we have that reflected in our Lutheran hymnody as well. And so in a sense, this is, you know, I talked about it being a Bible study of John 1, but as we were just talking there, it clearly is drawing in other scriptures, right? You talked about the offense of the cross. Well, St. Paul talks that way, right? So that's a Bible study for us at work there. And Hebrews, you know, that this is the blood of the Son of God. You know, you talked about all of those animals just being completely destroyed. But the Son of God was completely destroyed. And it is to reconcile us so that we don't have a wrathful God against us, that we know only a God of mercy who was willing to sacrifice his own son. Just excellent teaching and summary there for us. We're going to go ahead and take a break here, maybe just a little bit early. But when we come back, I want to pick up on the other side of the break here. These other uncomfortable words that come out in connection with the rule, that's an uncomfortable word, as you said. And then in that last section with the return, you know, maybe we're not uncomfortable with the idea of the return of Christ, but it says to return to judge. Well, that's that's an uncomfortable word for us in our Western culture, right? So we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break as we continue talking with our guest, Pastor David Wiest, here on Article 3, the Son of God from the Augsburg Confession. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUL.
Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finnern from Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. matters as we continue talking with Pastor David Wiest on Article 3 of the Augsburg Confession, the Son of God. And Pastor Wiest, just before break here, we were talking about these uncomfortable words that come up as we teach who Jesus is and what he came for. We face some rather uncomfortable ideas and uncomfortable words. And we talked about that in terms of being reconciled to God. I I just, you know, again, kind of like you said in the first segment there at one point, Maybe I should just speak for myself, but certainly for myself. But I think also as I serve as a pastor and talk with folks and minister to folks and so forth, I don't know that we think enough, especially in our Western and American context, American Christian context, about our need to be reconciled to God. And we talked about that a little bit. Also, and you highlighted this as well, we're rather uncomfortable with the idea of rule. I mean, I think probably one of our strongest kind of inclinations as Americans, especially, is that we just have a real fourth commandment and authority problem. Uh, Maybe again, I'm speaking a little bit for myself as a little bit of a rebel at times too, but definitely we see that. I think think we can all agree that that's just kind of one of our inborn things, especially as Americans. And so talk about that too. Why is that important to emphasize the rule of God, uh, especially the son of God? As I look back on the article around line four, where the verbs descended into hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, all those exaltation verbs that kind of highlight his rule, it really, that whole paragraph, it reminds me of occasionally of premarital counseling where you get to the wedding vows and, you know, just straight out of the hymnal here, the wedding vows and Sometimes I think that's probably a good place to start. I don't usually, but it's a good place to start with premarital counseling is with those wedding vows. And you can get a a pretty strong sense of what people need to work on and what they need to better understand about marriage because it's not terribly common, but it's not uncommon that somebody will have a particular issue with a particular word in the vows. They like the vows. If we could just get rid of that one word. Well, what they're ignoring is I think it's probably because of a social context. They're looking at that one word and they're defining it according to the way that the people around them define it instead of the words that surround that word. And that's the way to understand the word. You know, look at the context. And and in that paragraph, the word rule is defined by its context. And it has it has so many wonderful, wonderful things. I mean, first of all, understand it follows the born, suffered, crucified, dead, and buried. I mean, who is it that's ruling? It's the one who who already ruled, but he became flesh to die, <laughs> to bear our sins. Um, this is the one we want ruling, the one who came to reconcile, right? So you can't leave that context aside and just look at the one word and then define that word the same way our culture does or our sinful hearts do. And then on the other side of it, you have you know, all these wonderful words about bestowing life and protecting and defending and comforting and strengthening. I mean, in the context of all of those words that come before and all the words that come after, the word rule sounds pretty good. This is the guy, right? This is the guy I want to sit at the right hand of the Father and to rule. Because look at what he does. It's wonderful. Again, it's just a matter of paying attention to the words and dwelling on them and and always looking at him in their context. This is a beautiful context. This is somebody that I want to be in charge more than myself, for certain. And as, as we look there, too, I see the words rule and dominion and reigns over all creatures. And once again, as you referenced earlier with the John 1 citation, this takes us back to the creation, right? You know, why does he get to rule and reign and have dominion? Well, because he's the creator, right? We're the creatures. And so, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, we just kind of, again, we bucket that, but it's true. 
it's a matter of fact anyway. And then I like how you emphasize there for us. But this is a really good rule. I mean, it's not like one of the reasons that we tend to be, you know, buck against authority here in this life is because everything's under the curse of sin. And there's a lot of bad rulers and, you know, we're corrupted by sin. And so, you know, they don't do what we want. And so then we hold that against them and all those sorts of things play into that that we have a bad understanding of rule and reign. I think that plays into the marriage vows as well. That's a good connection there, too, of how we think about this. But what we have is a perfect ruler who rules in mercy and gives us true life out of that. Uh, One of the things, too, this is a little aside from the uncomfortable words. I want to come back to that, especially in talking about the, the return to judge part there. But before we do, one of the things that jumps out at me here, too, you've mentioned the crucified, died, descended into hell, and then rose. And that's the language we use, of course, in our creeds. But it actually jumps out at me here that it says truly rose. Do you make anything of that? Uh, Before we get to that, can I back? Something you said really struck me. If we can go back to that, you pointed to the rule and all the words that are used that point to the fact that Jesus is the creator. See, this is why starting with the person before we get to the work is so important. You pointed to the eternal word, right? The second person of the Trinity. But at the same time, I'm studying, just started a Bible study on Genesis in my men's Bible study. And the word that you read was dominion. And that was something that was given to Adam. And so we can think about Jesus as, I mean, Jesus is the creator, but he's also the Adam that Adam couldn't be. Right? So there's kind of a human nature thing here, too, because that responsibility was given to Adam, and you know he failed. Jesus did what Adam couldn't do. He does what we can't do for us. So there's kind of both natures represented in that one word, that one word, dominion. So anyway. Yeah, that's a good point to make, too, because that's the reason we buck against authority, right? And we have such authority issues is because what was corrupted in the sin and fall was the lordship that we were supposed to have under the lordship of God, right? That's what dominion's all about is lordship, right? We were supposed to be subject to God. And then in the sin, we wanted to be God ourselves. And that's why we have all the authority issues that we have. We want the ultimate dominion instead of being in submission to him who has dominion over all, right? Right. Yeah. And now we have the leader that we need. We have the ruler that we need. Yeah. So back to your, can you, I'm sorry, can you repeat your um other question. Yeah, well, and that was an excellent point. So thanks for taking us back to that, certainly. But one of the things that jumps out at me then, too, as we're talking about, as my wife loves to say a million times a day, words mean things, right? You know, all these words that jump out at us. One of them that jumps out at me, and maybe again, not an uncomfortable word, although for some in our culture, those who don't believe, (laughs) but one of the words that jumps out at me that I think is significant is that they insert something in there that we don't see in our credo language. We just say that he rose again, right? But this inserts truly rose. Do you make anything of that? Well, I'm glad it's there. I mean, I don't know if I have that much to say about it, but no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it's there. It needs to be emphasized. And I, I mean, I think it goes really well with something we talked earlier, the human nature and the divine that are inseparable. This Jesus who died is the same Jesus who rose. He may not exactly look the same. He may be doing things he didn't do before, um, like ascending and sitting at the right hand of the Father and all that, but this is the same Jesus who's true God and true man. And and the resurrection really demonstrates that. Um, I was going to mention that later on, perhaps, but again, John 20 with Thomas, where he says, my Lord and my God. It's an interesting thing that he makes that confession when he's touching flesh, right? Um, but that's what he's doing. He's putting his hands in the side of Jesus. And he says, as he touches the flesh, he says, my Lord, my God. Well, that's a weird thing to say if you're touching. I mean, I'm not going to like poke somebody and say, hey, I think they're God. But, but the thing is, this was somebody who was dead and now he's alive. So the resurrection emphasizes both the humanity of Christ and the divinity of, of our Savior too. So if that's what it's talking about, the two natures and the work of Christ, it's the same thing as you're talking about the works of Christ. I mean, this thing that he did, was it successful? Did he redeem us? Have we been reconciled? The resurrection really confirms everything. It confirms who he is. It confirms that what he did was successful for us. He has saved us. And and so that word truly, I, th- I think, probably emphasizes 
the correctness of everything that came before it in this article. Yeah, I mean, what jumps out at me about it here is the point that you were just making there, which reflects what St. Paul says, right? If Christ be not raised, then our faith is in vain, right? And one of the other things that jumps out at me here, too, is, is that most of the articles will end with, you know, and we condemn the teachings of such and such. We've seen that with the first couple of articles, right? And that doesn't necessarily do that here, but this certainly kind of throws, certainly that has been there ever since Christ did rise from the dead. He did truly rise from the dead. Uh, there were those who denied that, right? And so not any specific heresy referenced here or anything as we see in some of the other articles, but it certainly does make the point that this is central to the faith that we are confessing, which is what these first three articles are doing, is connecting us to that historic Christian faith and grounding it and saying, we're not any of the heretics that would fall under condemnation if we were confessing those things. We are holding to this. And so I didn't want to make a big deal of it or anything like that, but I did think it was, especially as it's related to the work of Christ, as you said there, that to emphasize that he did truly rise And I think that's a helpful word to insert there. I'm not going to go rewrite the creeds and make us put it in those or anything. I'm not going to play that game. But you know, know. I I don't think we have. I don't think we have to. Thankfully, (laughs) Um, everybody will be greatly relieved that you and I are not going to rewrite the creeds. (laughs) What I was thinking of was the Nicene Creed when it says "according to the Scriptures," and I'm not sure that doesn't kind of have the same effect as truly. And that does come after the resurrection. This was according to the Scriptures. I'm just confirming that it. This is true. This is true. Absolutely. Let's get to that last section there in terms of his work. A lot of things to cover here yet today, but as we continue to talk about this work here in that third R word that is drawn out here, talking about the return of Christ. And again, maybe for some within our culture, especially for unbelievers, terrifying thought that Christ is actually coming back, you know, so that may be a little uncomfortable for some, but generally those who are Christians and do profess the faith know that Christ is returning. And yet there is this thing that is uncomfortable for some, even once again within Christianity, is that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Talk a little bit about the significance of that part of the work of Christ. Yeah, I think the simplest way that that I could try to I don't want to just, I, I mean, I, I think it's good for people to struggle with uncomfortable words. And I guess that was my point in mentioning it in the very beginning is, so I want to provide some comfort, at least enough that people will look at them closer and struggle with them. And with this, the idea of judgment, I understand that it's hard to think of that in a comforting way, but I guess I would compare it to the way that we tend to live now, which is awful under pretense. And pretense is a terrible comfort, you know, trying to pretend to be something that I'm not. So nobody finds out the truth kind of resembles Adam and Eve when they were trying to hide in the garden from God. And that's just a terrible and fearful way to live. Somebody's going to find me out, right? I'd rather be, pardon the language, but I'd rather be naked and not ashamed, right? out there in the open. Here's who I am. And, you know, I'm not afraid of that. And of course, our culture pretends to be that way, but it's not, you know, and it's funny where they choose to hang out and even glorify things that are, that shouldn't be glorified in order to try to feel like they have some worth and some value to try to, to feel like they're okay. But it's all just pretense. And it, as I said, it's a terrible comfort. Instead, what we have is mercy. And that mercy is genuine. And it's not based on the fact that I fooled God (laughs) or I fooled everybody else. It's based on what Christ has done. He has borne my sin and my sins are forgiven. And so I get to act differently than Adam and Eve did in the garden when they hid. I get to confess my sins, knowing God is faithful and just, and he will forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Pretense is set aside. And and I think that moment of confession and absolution in the divine service and the comfort that comes from being able to do that is a foretaste of the sort of judgment that's being talked about here, at least in regards to the believer. The comfort of not only being forgiven, and made holy in the blood of Christ, 
but being completely and totally redeemed in a way that I can't even hardly comprehend right now. That's what it's going to be like for believers. So, you know, we talk about communion as a foretaste of the feast to come. I think we can talk about confession absolution almost as a foretaste of the, of the judgment to come. And it's good because of who's behind it and because of what Christ has done for us. Yeah, in a way, we might say that it's only uncomfortable if you're not reconciled to God, right? It takes us back to that first R word. Uh, but for those who are reconciled, we have the comfort that it's a judgment of mercy. And I, yeah, well said. Um, with about 10 minutes left here, I'm going to push us forward just because there's a few more points that we definitely want to hit on this. And it's good that we've dwelt on the teaching of this doctrine and what's confessed here in this teaching of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And, and that certainly lays the foundation for everything else. But with 10 minutes left here, let's go ahead and talk about how did the Roman Catholic Church, you know, we've talked about, you know, they responded with the confutation. What was the response in the back and forth, then also taking us into the apology with regards to this article? How was this received? Right. In the apology, it says very simply, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, even though it's one of the shorter articles, the apology, which can get quite long. Um, it says, the opponents approve of our third article, in which we confess that there are two natures in Christ, namely that the word assumed the human nature. And it, it goes on. It, I mean, he kind of restates what we already have in this article. But the, the main thing here is the opponents, we're in agreement. And so it's a very, it's a very short, there's no real defense that needs to, to be made here in regards to the person and work of Jesus. I would add, though, and we'll talk about this more later, so we don't have to spend a lot of time dwelling on this, I don't think. But even though there's agreement, two things. One is there hasn't always been on these topics. These were hard-fought topics in the ancient church, and, and it's why we have the creeds, because there wasn't agreement. So I think it's an agreement that we shouldn't take for granted. Um, there's a reason why we confess the creed every Sunday. So we definitely shouldn't take it for granted, and it deserves our time and our contemplation and our understanding and needs to continue to be taught. It may seem obvious, but that's only because people fought hard to defend these truths. And so we want to we want to honor that, I think, by dwelling on these things, thinking about them. The other thing is, the more we dwell on them and think about them, the better prepared we are for the next article. And we'll get to that later. But justification is a controversial article that needs defending to this very day. How are we justified? And you're, again, the person comes before the work. And so understanding who Jesus is, knowing backwards and forwards, these wonderful creedal verbs um, and the creeds and what it, that really means is absolutely essential. So even though there wasn't technically any argument, you know, I tend to think still there was agreement but truly, if we understand these things, then we should be on the same page when it comes to justification. And we're not. We weren't, and we're not. Somewhere in this article, even though there was agreement, somewhere in this article, I think, is where we begin to see a problem, where we, we just don't spend enough time with the personal work of Jesus. And it gets us into trouble. Yeah, I think uh, a couple of points that have been made by a couple of the different guests, and so I, I, don't, I may not remember exactly who at this point, even though we've only had a few episodes on the Augsburg Confession so far, but I believe in our historical introduction, Dr. Kilcrease made the point that basically these first three articles are, as you said, those hard-fought issues in the history of the church that were so hard-fought that actually in the Roman Empire, <laughs> um, which they're still in on, at that point, these were the things that not only were you declared a heretic, which means basically nothing to anyone today. They, they could care less, you know, might find it a little offensive to be called a heretic. But at that time, you could be put to death, right? And so it's important that we start with these first three and say that we're not confessing the heresy of these things. And you have no legal right to put us to death because we agree with the church. And it's good that they found that agreement. And that kind of gives us the success of that, right? But then, and, and I, I can't remember if it was uh, Pastor Beck that made this point in Article 2, or uh, Dr. Clayton that made it in Article 1. But uh, we also start to see here that while these articles, and these first three especially, are affirmed, and you know we say we have agreement, you start to see the subtle things, but we're really not. And I think you put it really well there, that essentially what's going on is kind of a backhanded thing of saying, 
well, if we were really in agreement on this, <laughs> you'd get Article 4 in justification, right? And so uh, clearly, because we're in disagreement there, and you talked about the apology can get really long. Uh, of course, Article 4 and the apology, very long when we went just kind of reading through all of the things and so forth. And we covered the apology several years ago. I think it took us like a couple of years to get through Article 4. So uh, yeah, so clearly we're not on target here, or we would have agreement when we get to Article 4, kind of the first really big thing that we don't have agreement on. So did you want to make any point on that here of kind of where you see some disagreement here? One of the things the large catechism says about the second article of the creed is that it is a rich and far-reaching article. And I, I, I guess my encouragement today to the listener is to tap into that. There's a wealth here that sometimes we think, okay, we know this and we move on and we move to the controversies. And I'm wondering how the conversation would change if all of these, you know, not, and we're not just talking about Roman Catholicism, if all of these denominations, they're not all creedal, but let's just say all the denominations that, you know, recognize the creeds and, and maybe even confess the creeds, if they started the conversation with this article that supposedly we're in agreement on, and they delved into this this rich and far-reaching article, as the large catechism says, it would be interesting to see how the conversation went if we just spent time like we have in this episode, but even more so, looking at these words and what they mean in their context, how they're used in the scriptures, and, and really just spending more time than we do on who Jesus is and what has Jesus done. Instead, what we have is, all I need is Jesus, you know, we're, and that tends to be an approach where we use the name of Jesus and we talk about the death of Jesus, maybe the resurrection of Jesus, but, but we don't really delve into what the Old and New Testament have to say about who he is and what he's done, what he does, and what he will do. You know, he keeps it light. Um, let's just all agree to believe in Jesus. Okay, let's do that. Who is he? <laughs> What's his work? We could have a wonderful conversation, and and we supposedly would be starting on the same page. It might not be a bad way to to approach our our brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us on some of these other articles, like justification of the sacraments. Yeah, I agree. That's great, and we're going to come back to that idea just in a second because obviously, where we're going next is the article on justification. And I think those are great questions to ask, you know, who is Jesus, essentially, you know, let's have a conversation about that. And that's what I think they're setting up here as well in this progression. But before we make that connection, we'll end the show there as we kind of look at what's coming next here. But one other point here with just a couple minutes, again, that I want you to talk about is one of the things that I want to emphasize as we go through the Augsburg Confession here is how we see this play out in our Christian life. How do we confess this? regularly in our Christian life, maybe some ways that we obviously confess it, but maybe don't think about, or uh, ways that we should consider confessing that. Did you want to make any points there? Yeah, uh, I would say um, a little bit of advice. One, don't just look for something new when you study the scriptures that you've never seen before. You're going to frustrate yourself eventually. You're going to feel like you know it all when you don't. Don't necessarily just look for the new thing. Well, I haven't studied that book of the Bible. I'll do that. I mean, that's fine. But our approach, especially liturgically, is different. We go over the same things over and over and over again. And don't just look for the things that, you know, kind of touch your heart, that make you feel good in the moment or something like that. In the same way, there are folks that jump right to the controversies. You know, they want to jump right into the middle of it because maybe it's dividing them and somebody that they love, and they want to jump right into that theological controversy. Um, but I think we need to recognize good questions, correct answers, that it all relies on starting in the right place. And the, with that in mind, the more we meditate on this article about who Jesus is and, and his work, the truer our direction will be, the better our questions will be, and the more edifying our study would be. These first three articles that you have covered are the foundation, and there's no moving away from it without finding ourselves trying to build without a foundation. We don't want to do that. So keep going back to these things and apply them. When you get to the controversies, don't set them aside. These are here to help you deal with those more controversial things. This is the stuff, right? Who is Jesus? What he's done? This is the stuff to meditate on day and night and to rejoice over. And, and I, I really want to emphasize that before we stop. 
Rejoice in the good news that you have this article of faith that is clear and certain and even succinct and by and large agreed upon. That is such a blessing. So dwell on that and enjoy it. And let the person and work of Christ comfort and encourage your faith. There's all kinds of examples in the scriptures of exactly that happening. I already mentioned Thomas. I mean, when he saw Jesus, when he took the time to investigate, what followed was this wonderful confession of faith, my Lord and my God. Jesus, when he cleansed the temple, people got upset and said, show us a sign. He said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And then John writes, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And and he makes this commentary, John makes this commentary that later on when Jesus rose from the dead, they remembered that and they believed. See, as they thought about what Jesus had said and what Jesus had done, the result was their faith was strengthened. And even with the crucifixion of Jesus as, you know, some heathen Gentile centurion watched on and looked at everything that was going on, the result was he was filled with all. He said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is what happens when we spend time thinking about this article and all the wonderful things that are in it. Our faith is encouraged and we're comforted. It's well worth the time of everybody listening to go back to what they already know so that they can be encouraged in the faith. And in that sense then too, you mentioned this to me just before we went on air today, that in a way then this reflects what we see play out in the lectionary and life of the church, right? You know, you walk through, I mean, we're coming out of the season of Epiphany and coming into the season of Lent, you know, and, and Epiphany reveals who Jesus is to us, right? That's what that season's all about. And then we come into Lent and, and the focus on his passion and, and the work that he does comes to its culmination on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter. And yeah, I mean, it's just reflected there. Uh, just about 30 seconds here. Uh, how does this article then set up what comes next? How does this confession of our faith propel us forward and what's coming next during the Oxford Confession? The order matters, right? The person work of Christ comes before we understand really the article of justification. There is no justification for us if Christ is not true God and true man. And if the verbs of the creeds are not a true description of the work of our Lord, then there is no justification for us. So these are foundational to the wonderful, wonderful conversation you're going to have next week about justification. That is well said. Thank you so much, Pastor David Weiss, for joining us for Concord Matters today and teaching us the Lutheran Confession of the Son of God from Article 3 of the Augsburg Confession. As you said, next week we will look at Article 4 on justification, that chief doctrine upon which the church stands or falls, and everything's going to play off of this, and this Article 3 has set that up. So please join us next week as we get to that article. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.